You're listening to a special edition of One Decision, hosted by me, Julia McFarlane. We're at the NATO summit in Madrid at a pivotal moment in the alliance's 73-year history. Leaders from around the world, including several from nations who are not part of NATO, but have special interests in the issues that have been discussed here this week. Particular attention is being given to the Baltic states, the three nations of Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, formerly occupied by the Soviet Union, have long called for a tougher stance from the West when it comes to Russia. NATO has heard their call. With the announcement of a dramatic ramping up of high alert troops, new rotational deployments on Baltic soil and a new US permanent base in nearby Poland. The addition of Sweden and Finland as new members will also add two of the most sophisticated and powerful armies on the continent to the NATO alliance, doubling the NATO border with Russia. We sat down with the president of Latvia, Egils Levitz, to hear his reaction to the news that NATO has decided to beef up its presence on the eastern flank. Mr. President, thank you so much for talking with us today. Um, I just want to go straight into it. I want to ask you, first of all, uh, the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg announced ahead of this summit um, that NATO will significantly increase the number of forces on high alert up to 300,000. That's up from their current levels of 40,000. It's being described as the biggest overhaul to NATO since the Cold War. So, Give us your reaction to that initial announcement. Obviously, we're expecting more to come. The Baltics have been pushing for more troops, for more defences. Uh, are you satisfied with that initial news of, of a big increase of, of troops on high alert? Uh, can you tell us also about the conversations you've had with your fellow leaders, if this initial announcement is, yes. is going down well with you? Yeah, of course. Uh, this is uh, adi- uh, an additional boost of uh, NATO presence in uh, eastern flank, uh, of course, uh, to to increase the uh, number of troops from 40,000 to 300,000 uh, is a lot. Uh, that means that uh, the time to react for these troops uh, uh, will be uh, considerably shorter, and that means also uh, the reaction time is quicker and uh, that uh, will increase the security in our region or in the eastern flank of of NATO because, uh, of course, uh, Russia should have also uh, some troops uh, on on Russian side and then we can react if uh, Russia is moving uh, their uh, troops uh, somewhere in in eastern flank, then uh, the reaction time of NATO would be considerably shorter. Also, it is an additional uh, stre- strengthening of the eastern flank. But uh, we are uh, also working uh, in in uh, in a certain time to have also brigades uh, uh, deployed in each of the. Uh, Baltic uh, countries, also in Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. We have uh, already uh, a considerable uh, number of uh, allied troops there. Uh, The the problem is uh, that um, we need also enablers, so air defense and so on, in order to make these troops and uh, and, um, uh, also additional troops uh, in order to make uh, them uh, combat ready. 
I would stress that uh, this uh, NATO presence in eastern flank uh, is uh, a tool to deter Russia, also a tool to keep the peace. And it is always cheaper uh, to uh, keep the peace by deterrence, by uh, the presence of uh, NATO troops and uh, real uh, capabilities as uh, a war. And therefore, it is a politics uh, in order to keep the peace uh, in Europe and to keep uh, Russia in, in its borders, I would say. You, you make the very, very important point that uh, deterrence and keeping the peace is cheaper in the long run than yes, entering into full-out warfare. Yeah. Tell, tell us about the situation in Latvia, because we're seeing a lot of countries across Europe that are dealing with uh, what looks to be a very protracted economic crisis. And many members uh, of NATO, including the US and the UK, reportedly do not favour permanent new bases in the Baltics, that, according to diplomats speaking to Reuters. They say it would cost billions, it would be hard to sustain in the long term, um, the states may not have enough troops and weaponry, uh, and a permanent presence uh, would also likely be highly provocative to Moscow. Do you find reticence among a lot of other member states to a permanent base in, in the eastern flank? Is that what you're asking for, permanent bases and permanent uh, deployments, or do you want escalation of a presence just while this crisis is going on? First of all, uh Russia has an aggressive ideology, long-term ideology, uh, and the uh, goal of Russia is to restore the empire and to dominate over the whole of Europe. I would stress to dominate over the whole of Europe. And uh, this is uh, the uh, Russian ideology, and accordingly they're acting. And... Uh, Russia uh, sees uh, that uh, Russia should be the dominated power in, in Europe, in, uh, also so that uh, European Union and, and all European uh, states uh, would uh, not more have a free democratic choice of their politics and uh, uh, should uh, have, um, so to say, accept the domination of Russia. So, and it is not acceptable for free countries, for European Union countries, for NATO countries. So, and uh, Russia is not provoked by strength, not provoked by uh, the presence of NATO. Uh, Russia is provoked by weakness, mm. by weakness of NATO, by weakness of uh, European allies, by weakness of uh, transatlantic bonds and so on. Then, if there is a weak part in, on, the, in, on, on the line uh, between Europe uh, as a whole, from the north to the south, and Russia, then Russia will uh, look for the weakest, weakest part of this uh, line and uh, will go uh, further there. And therefore, it is a task to... And that means war. And I, I can repeat, war is much more, more expensive as to keep uh, um, our military capabilities uh, by, by, by this uh, line between, between uh, NATO and, and Russia. 
uh, it is uh, cheaper, I would say. And therefore, uh, this argument is not valid. Uh, I would say we should look realistically to Russia and not have uh, more illusions. It's enough illusions which we had in the last uh, decade. Uh, it is uh, clear that uh, Russia is an aggressive neighbor and uh, our task is to keep uh, Russia within its borders and to, uh, to defend uh, uh, our uh, freedom and democracy. I want to pick you up on two things that you've just said, but firstly, uh, you say that Russia is provoked by weakness and not strength. I think that's arguably the case. Russia is known to, uh, pro to, to, to try to promote fractures in alliances such as NATO and such as the EU. But does it work also then that Russia is deterred by strength? We may wish that to be true, but can you think of an example where showing strength has actually caused Russia not to escalate, but to pull back? And is that an example that you can use in your... I think uh, uh, um, the situation after the Second World War, for example, during the Cold War, was clear that uh, because uh, NATO shows strength, and uh, it was a basis for the peace mm. uh, between Russia or previous Soviet Union and, and NATO or the West. And uh, then when uh, uh, West is showing weakness, then of course it is a provocation for Russia and Russia is trying to go further. And I think uh, Russia will uh, go so far as we allow it to go. Uh, this is uh, the basic uh, assumption. And uh, if we want to keep uh, peace in Europe, if we want to uh, keep our democracy safe, then of course we should show the strength. And strength uh, by, by both, by uh, political uh, unity and demonstration that we are united and we are willing to defend ourselves and also by real military capabilities and um, words uh, alone are not enough mm. uh, the words should be uh, uh, should be uh, stressed by real military capabilities and Moscow should know that so to see, Moscow should be aware of that, of our capabilities. And then, of course, it's a basis for a peace with an aggressive neighbor, with an aggressive neighbor which wants to dominate Europe. If uh, Russia would change the ideology, this, uh, then, of course, uh, we will also change our, uh, our um, defense uh, concept, but still this... Uh, until uh, uh, Russia has changed its behavior and its ideology, we uh, should react um, then realistic. It's interesting that you use the Cold War as an example of when adopting a position of strength has caused Russia uh, to pull back on its on its aggression. A lot of people have been making comparisons with the Cold War uh, in this current uh, climate. Do you think then that going back to the Cold War playbook 
is that a template that we want to follow? Because if we were to do that, that takes this into a conflict, not just between Russia and Ukraine, but Russia and the West. And there are a lot of member states, a lot of European nations, a lot of countries that do not want to make this into a fight between then, Russia and then the West. Uh, the alternative is to capitulate. Also, uh, we, I think a lot of people in Europe want to defend their freedom. And, uh, of course, the alternative is to capitulate, to accept uh, Russian domination. And I think uh, for, for uh, the majority of Europeans it is not acceptable. And this is a price also uh, which we should pay. Uh, we don't. Uh, we should keep the peace. I will stress that. Keep the peace by showing strength. This is a, a, a concept. Does, does but does that then mean if if you if you say there is no alternative other than capitulation? Does that mean in your eyes this is already a conflict, not just between Ukraine and Russia, but the West and Russia? And at what what point do we have to admit that that we are actively? maybe not in open warfare against Russia, but we are certainly entering into an active conflict against Russia. Uh, of course, uh, we are uh, based, as our states, NATO, European Union, are based on certain values. And uh, therefore, uh, we are supporting Ukraine, because Ukraine is also a democratic country. It is attacked against international law, and our commitment is to democracy, to international law. And uh, we uh, have also um, uh, to uh, be aware that uh, not the whole world is uh, the same opinion as, as we. And uh, we are not alone in the world. And if we wanted to have our values, our European way of life, uh, then, of course, we should be ready to defend it. Unfortunately, but this is reality. And if we close eyes to the reality, then, of course, uh, it is to the detriment of uh, our systems. Does Latvia consider itself uh, as perhaps preparing for a possible state of war against Russia. We've heard recently that the head of the British Army and the Defence Secretary have both given uh, very strong statements about the need for British troops and, and the armed forces to be ready to be in a state of conflict uh, against Russia, to be ready to, to be deployed in action on European soil. What does Latvia think at the moment? What what is the mood in your country? Are, are your are your is your country readying itself for the possibility that this could get very bad very quickly? Yes, of course we uh, we have uh, also considerably increased our military budget. We are spending uh, since years already over the required two percent of GDP, and uh, we decided now to increase to two point five percent of GDP. Uh, it is according uh, to the NATO. Uh, um, decision from 2014 and uh, I think um, that was we are showing our the readiness uh, that is uh, uh, the basis uh, that uh, Latvia and other NATO states uh, can keep the peace. If 
your country were to declare a state of war against Russia, would you carry uh, popular opinion back home with you, do you think? Uh, I think uh, we would uh, not alone uh, do it. It is uh, Article 5 of NATO. Uh, If one NATO member state is attacked, it is an uh, attack to other other 29 member states too. And uh, this is uh, the, the unity is also the basis uh, that we can say that NATO is the most powerful uh, defense alliance in the world and uh, the capabilities of NATO uh, are uh, much more uh, much more higher than of Russia so and therefore to keep uh, this advantage is very very important in order uh, to keep the peace in Europe. I I can also uh, repeat that uh, uh, we are doing here, in reality, with an aggressive neighbor which wants to dominate uh, the whole Europe. And I think this is reality. And uh, we want to save our way of life, we want to save our values, to save democracy, and therefore we should invest in uh, more uh, military capabilities in order uh, that uh, there would not be a war in Europe. You mentioned Article 5 of the NATO Treaty and the Mutual Defence Clause. It's an interesting clause because in many ways it can be quite open to interpretation. So I wanted to ask you, what counts as an attack against NATO members? Um, We have seen very recently your uh, Baltic neighbour Lithuania says it has come under attack from the Russians in terms of its cyberspace. Would a cyber attack against a NATO member constitute an attack to which NATO uh, may, may feel uh, forced to act upon and, and, and trigger Article 5? So the classical, uh, classical uh, interpretation of Article 5 is uh, to, uh, that one member state is attacked by, uh, by the troops of an adversary. Uh, this, of course, uh, is a main uh, main uh, content of Article Five. But uh, in the last time, also there are new other uh, threats like cyber threats, uh, like hybrid threats, and uh, we are discussing in NATO that uh, if uh, cyber threats and cyber attacks and uh, hybrid attacks uh, would reach a certain level uh, and that uh, could also uh, be a a case for Article 5. This is a discussion in NATO already since uh, since a few last years Mm -hmm. and I I expect that we will uh, in our decisions tomorrow will reflect also uh, this uh, new kind of threats for uh, for uh, NATO states. I, I want to ask you, um, because you mentioned the need uh, to protect NATO and you, and you, you mentioned um, pushing Russia back to its borders. It's 
recently been making a lot of gains uh, ahead of this summit. The Russians, they've taken over Severodonetsk, which have, has been their biggest victory since the fall of Mariupol. Uh, Russia's managed to carve out quite a significant slice of uh, the Donbass in eastern Ukraine and now claims this territory as Russian ground. President Zelensky, he's not minded to give part of his country to Vladimir Putin in order for a, a ceasefire to take place. And many caution him against doing so because that would essentially reward Putin for his invasion. But what is the current NATO policy of arming Ukraine in its defense? Is it explicitly limited to defensive postures and pushing Russia back from its advance? Or is there NATO support for allowing the Ukrainians to advance against Russia to take back their territory um, that they have taken and back to the conventional Russian borders? Um, because we've seen uh, recently the Kremlin has indicated that Western weapons striking Russian soil crosses a red line. And of course, they would likely claim an attack against Russian soil, given that they now claim the Donbass is now Russian territory. Also, uh to define uh, the uh, goals of the defense of Russia, of defense of uh, Ukraine is up to Ukraine. Uh, also, we cannot say to Ukraine, you should give up some territory. Then, of course, uh, a politician which uh, is saying that uh, better he can offer a part of his territory, not of Ukraine's territory. Also, this is absolutely unacceptable advice to Ukraine. So uh, our task is to help the Ukraine to win the war, to win the war accordingly to the goals of uh, Ukraine, because uh, if uh, Russia will, at the end, gain something that is, of course, for short time. Uh, Russia has shown and uh, declared openly that uh, the uh, goals are much more far-reaching, uh, and therefore it, uh, Ukraine is now fighting our fight, and we should help Ukraine uh, military to uh, to uh, be uh, strong uh, enough to defend uh, uh, the country. Many NATO allies in Europe and the US support calls for larger uh, for a larger force in principle, but in reality, a lot of them say that allies can only commit to maintaining higher troop levels, pre-positioning equipment, uh, weapons and ammo in, in the region. And that's because many members are dealing with crippling uh, economic situations after the pan pandemic and amid the energy and supply chain crisis. How badly do you think this economic climate is going to hamper security in Europe? And tell us also about the situation that Latvia faces. You, uh, After breaking away from the Soviet Union, you were still dependent on Russia for energy. And I believe in 1998, the Russians actually cut off part of your gas supply, citing discrimination against ethnic Russians in, in Latvia, very similar to some of the, uh, to, to the playbook Russia is using against the Ukrainians as well. What's the picture inside Latvia? Um, Latvia is in the same situation as other NATO member states. Of course, uh, uh, our dependence from till now from Russian gas is used uh, on, from Russia as a tool to influence uh, the politics. But uh, uh, we are not more importing uh, Russia's, uh, Russian uh, ga gas and uh, we are going to LNG gas. So that uh, this dependence is, uh, in principle, not more uh, existing. Uh, 
so we should see what is uh, more important for us, uh, our freedom, our values, our country, or um, uh, some, uh, some uh, millions of, of euros. And I think if we are, uh, would ask uh, Spaniards on Latvi or Latvians, the answer will be the same. Of course, our country and our freedom is uh, much more valuable as, uh, um, so to say, economic gains. A lot of NATO members, uh, particularly Poland, have seen a huge influx of Ukrainian refugees. This is a crisis that requires not just military considerations, but also humanitarian ones. Has Latvia offered to take in any Ukrainian refugees? How, how many people are you seeing uh, take refuge inside your territory? And has the Latvian, how have the Latvian people responded to that? Uh, we are uh, we, in Latvia. We have so forty thousand uh, Ukrainian refugees. Uh, they are, in principle, uh, integrated and uh, welcomed in our society. Uh, they are not uh, living or in in refugee camps. Uh, they are uh, living in our society and uh, waiting uh, to go back. Uh, and we have. Um, adapted a special law on Ukrainian war refugees so that they can work and uh, the children can go to school and so on. They are uh, integrated. Of course, it is a, a huge effort for Latvia and a huge effort for Poland for, uh, with more than 4 million of refugees. Uh, but we are doing so because uh, we are serious concerning uh, our values and our democracy, and uh, therefore we are uh, we are doing uh, uh, so and helping Ukrainian refugees. Among the people who have taken refuge in Latvia include some former Russian state TV journalists, and so I wanted to ask you: uh, Latvia has banned Russian TV uh, until Putin gives in to Ukraine's demands. We've recently uh, spoken to the former Prime Minister of Estonia, Tavi Roivas, and uh, we spoke to him just before the Russians invaded Ukraine. Uh, and at the time, he said that populations in the Baltic states were very well vaccinated against Russia, uh, Russian propaganda. Do you agree with that? And how much of an issue is disinformation in this conflict with regard to shaping uh, opinions in other European nations that have not had uh, the Soviet experience that you and your, your, your country and your fellow Baltic nations have? I would say uh, the Soviet experience is already over 30 years ago and uh, in uh, 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 there is a new generation uh, which have not uh, this uh, Soviet experience and uh, they have European experience. And of course, uh, European values such uh, are, um, are, uh, are uh, the basis for our value system. Uh, so, uh, but um, the Russian propaganda channels uh, were closed down uh, after uh, the Russian invasion in Ukraine uh, for uh, two reasons, uh, because uh, we are a democratic and free country and we don't need and don't want to have uh, this war propaganda and this hate, hatred uh, against the uh, Ukrainian nation and against Europe. 
So it is not covered by uh, the um, um, uh, freedom of expression. Um, hate speech is uh, is outside this freedom, and uh, and we are uh, have done this uh, also uh, in regard with uh, as uh, with solidarity to Ukraine, because we uh, don't uh, want that in our territory there is hate speech against Ukrainian nation, for example, to say that there is no right to exist for Ukrainian nation. I think this is very strong and I think uh, democracy should not be helpless. But but it's not just hate speech, it's also disinformation. It is it course. is allegations that, oh, that's not the Russians yeah. bombing that hospital, yeah. those are Ukrainian yeah. missiles. Yeah, also such kind of disinformation is also outside the freedom of expression. For example, yesterday this uh, attack against uh, uh, in, in, in Ukraine against um, uh, this um, shopping center where uh, many uh, people uh, were, were killed uh, to, to say that it's Ukraine's, Ukrainians themselves killed themselves. Uh, also, it's uh, absolutely rubbish. And uh, we have as uh, uh, people which uh, are serious to democracy we uh, can, can say stop, not more. I mean, the, those allegations and, and that disinformation has is very frequently dismissed by people in the West. But how dangerous is it? Because it is convincing large numbers of, of, of people across I, the country. I think it is more dangerous in Spain or in Germany uh, as in Latvia, but because as the Estonian prime minister already said, uh, we are exposed over 30 years to such kind of propaganda, mm. uh, open propaganda and uh, hidden propaganda. So, and uh, therefore, uh, I see the, uh, that uh, there is, uh, for example, in uh, some Western countries, uh, ideas that uh, we uh, uh, should uh, give up uh, our uh, democracy uh, uh, for. Uh, uh, in order to satisfy Russian expansion or that uh, there is a need for uh, Putin to, uh, to save the face. I don't care about his face, I would say openly. Uh, I am caring about the people uh, uh, who he is killing. This is my opinion. You, you say you know, the Soviet Union was 30 years ago, we are in a different era. European nations have the European experience and they don't have the Soviet experience in their immediate recollection. Do those European nations, do you feel that they adequately understand the threat of Russian imperialism and aggression, uh, given that they have not had the experiences that you guys have had in the Baltics? And is that frustrating for you? I mean, the Baltics have consistently and for many, many years always advocated for the West to take a stronger stance against Russia. Do you ever find yourself getting frustrated with the Europeans? And do you think they really understand the threat of Russia? Uh, of course, uh, this uh, experience of uh, Soviet terror over 50 years uh, is helping to understand the reality. Uh, if uh, a country has not this experience, of course, uh, it is um, uh, maybe a little bit, uh, um, let's say, um, they must have more, uh, give more efforts. But uh, 
I think the more uh, the most people in Western Europe has uh, not lived during the Second World War. You have not lived uh, during Franco time, and also uh, this uh, Franco time and Second World War has also some roots and uh, some footprints in your thinking. And I think we have also um, also a similar experience there, also Second World War. And uh, I think uh, if, uh, if the civil society is aware of, uh, of uh, democracy and the principles of democracy, including also um, historical experiences from generations, uh, from previous generations, then of course we can rely on democracy. And I think uh, Latvians are relying on, on the strengths of democracy. I have one final question to you because we've got two minutes left. Give us your reaction to the reports that have come out recently that apparently EU nations have tried to water down, reportedly, sanctions against Russia, particularly with regard to the ex- uh, the exportation of Russian goods from Kaliningrad uh, through to Russia and the Lithuanians uh, who have been blocking uh, those goods in transit. What do you make of these reports that some EU states are trying to water down those sanctions and the fact that the, that Russia has already reacted extremely harshly against Lithuania and have warned uh, of punitive action to follow? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, the sanctions are directed against Russia, of course, uh, but uh, the sanctions have also repercussions to our countries, also for Latvia. And uh, Latvians are, of course, uh, ready to pay this uh, price uh, because we know that our country is more valuable than this uh, losses through the sanctions. And uh, so I would say that also uh, other uh, European states or NATO states, we are here by NATO, NATO summit, are uh, thinking the same, but of course there are some specific interests of some companies and there are lobbies and they are trying to circumvent that. But uh, the majority is uh, firm in order to keep the sanctions. Is that disappointing? Uh, no, in democracy you cannot have 100% of unanimity. So to say there are always... Uh, Always people, uh, you have also uh, here uh, some people which non-democratic views in Spain, like in, in other countries, and, uh, but uh, uh, decisive is a majority, is a big majority, I would say. An extremely diplomatic answer. Uh, Mr. President, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you very much, and all the best for you. That's it for this special edition of One Decision. Stay tuned for more NATO coverage released this week. We've got presidents, foreign ministers, diplomats, former secretary generals, and of course, all the context and analysis on what this all means for the world from my co-host, Sir Richard Dearlove. From me and the team, thanks for listening and see you next time.